Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Billionaire businessman Jeffrey Epstein was arrested in New York Saturday on federal charges related to sex trafficking. Epstein was arrested when his private jet landed from Paris. Agents executed a search warrant on his uh, mansion in uh, New York City. Inside, investigators found hundreds of female nude photographs, some of the photos seeming to show underage girls. He is now facing up to 45 years in prison on charges that he was running a sex trafficking ring in the early 2000s that included underage girls as young as 14 years old. The arrest of Jeffrey Epstein in July 2019 shocked the world. Even if for some, it was a long time coming. The chilling rumors, at last, seemed real as federal agents accused Epstein of masterminding the world's most extensive child sex ring. But he wasn't the only sex fiend thrust into the spotlight. Caught up in the scandal were some of the world's most powerful men. Previous accounts stated Clinton flew with Epstein on his private jet 11 times. A jet accuser say was equipped for sex with underage victims and was used to travel to Epstein's private island, nicknamed Orgy Island. Newly obtained documents show Clinton actually took at least 26 flights on Epstein's private jet to spots around the globe. A tape in the NBC archives of a Mar-a-Lago party shows Trump giving Epstein his personal attention. We know that Prince Andrew saw Jeffrey Epstein two years after he was convicted by a Florida court for child sex offenses. Nearly 15 years after Epstein was first accused of child sex abuse, it seemed he would face justice at last, along with his co-conspirators. But on August 10th, there was a shocking twist. Some breaking news right now. Disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein has taken his own life while he was behind bars here in New York City. New York City's medical examiner ruled Jeffrey Epstein's death was a suicide and that he died by hanging himself in his jail cell. Jeffrey Epstein's death raises almost as many questions as did the shocking allegations about his life. Welcome to Epstein, Devil in the Darkness. I'm your host, Danielle Robey. As a reporter, this story has fascinated me from the beginning. I was shocked by the cover-up, the web of lies, and of course, the elite involved in the scandal. The only constant in this story is that with each finding, there are more questions than answers. Until now. This podcast will answer those questions. We'll hear from people close to Epstein who are speaking publicly for the very first time and piecing parts of this story together that have yet to be told. Over the next 12 episodes, we will explore the twisted life and mysterious death of the man who masterminded a global child sex network, one that catered to world leaders, millionaires, and even A-list celebrities. In world-exclusive interviews with Epstein's co-conspirators, colleagues, and victims, we'll explore how he got away with his life of unspeakable crime for so long. Welcome to Epstein, Devil in the Darkness. 
Here, journalist Laura Goldman. I got a sense, you know, now I feel bad because I got a sense something was off. I didn't really pay attention to what was off. I now, when I see what's happened to all these girls, I feel incredibly terrible that I didn't stop it. And the truth about how it all came to a brutal end in his grim New York City jail cell. Was Epstein's death suicide or murder? And who was behind it? The beginning of this sordid tale, perhaps surprisingly, unfolds in a middle-class Brooklyn neighborhood, one where no one would have predicted there was a monster growing in their midst. Jeffrey Epstein was very likable. He was funny, and he was kind of irreverent. I can compare him sort of to James Dean in some ways. You know, he was like the last rebel. He was always into showing you that he didn't have to play the game. He's just a very, very smart guy. Everybody knew, everybody recognized him. I mean, why do you think all these very high-profile, successful people wanted to be around him? Because they all recognized his caliber, his classification, who he was. And he's brilliant. Jeffrey Epstein was born on January 20th, 1953, in the New York borough of Brooklyn, the eldest son of gardener Seymour Epstein and school aide Pauline. A year later, younger brother Mark would be born. As childhood friend Gary Grossberg remembers, Jeffrey excelled in school as a child and was popular among his classmates. He was a friend of mine. He was a very, very kind person. I mean, I never asked him for anything. He never offered me anything. He always said to me, how are you doing? Are you okay? And fine. You know, that, that was my relationship. He was always a gentleman, always very kind with everyone, and always took a personal interest in everyone and, and everybody. And I was looked up to Jeffrey. He's very, very smart. Jeffrey was raised in the Seagate area of Coney Island, and nothing in his upbringing suggested the monster he would become. Seagate was a very, very beautiful, happy family community. The beach was there, the ocean was there, so it was, uh, it was very, very charming. Another classmate of Epstein's, Brenda Solovitz, also remembers Jeffrey as a regular boy. At that time, he seemed to me just like a normal person. I didn't know him as doing anything outrageous. He was like no worse or no different than the rest of us at that point. To me, he was a normal guy. You know, a really bright, normal guy. Epstein's happy childhood was reflected in his schoolwork. He excelled at music and math and graduated high school two years early to take classes at the prestigious Cooper Union College and the current Institute of Mathematical Sciences in New York. But after three years of higher learning, he suddenly quit without having received a degree from either institution. Even reporters who've investigated for years have questions about exactly what happened. Melissa Cronin, a journalist who's covered the case since 2014, explains. It's something of a mystery as to why he dropped out. There's no record of any scandal or impropriety at that stage. It may just be that he couldn't hack it. Even his close friends seem mystified by it. Epstein's ability to charm those around him, however, was still developing. Despite his lack of a diploma, he somehow secured a position as math and science teacher at the elite Dalton School in Manhattan's Upper East Side. He was hired by Donald Barr, who was father of Attorney General Bill Barr. And the immediate question that springs to mind is, how? Here's a guy, just 21, he's a college dropout, and he's teaching the kids of some of New York's richest families. At Dalton, sources told Cronin Epstein seized his chance to make an impression on the wealthy parents of his students. So while at Dalton, he really portrayed himself as this inspirational, dead poet society kind of guy. His students remember him as flamboyantly dressed, kind of lenient with the rules, 
there were even rumors he showed up at student parties. Somewhere along the line, he managed to impress one student's father who worked on Wall Street, and the guy gave Epstein the phone number of Alan Greenberg, who was chief executive at Bear Stearns. However, his time there was short-lived. Financier Stephen Hoffenberg explains. At Bear Stearns, Jeffrey Epstein was a junior partner, a licensed broker with the various SEC regulations that you needed to be licensed to sell securities. He violated the SEC rules at Bear Stearns in a number of financial transactions and was discharged for misconduct and lost his securities licenses with that charging of misconduct at Bear Stearns. That didn't stop Epstein's rise. Instead of calling it quits, he went into business for himself. At just 28, Jeffrey Epstein had become one of Wall Street's so-called masters of the universe, making fabulously rich people even richer, and amassing a fortune for himself along the way. Among those in his increasingly elite social circle at the time was Jesse Kornbluth, author, screenwriter, and contributing editor for Vanity Fair. Jeffrey was Peter Pan. He looked young and was fit and cheerful and self-amused. He had an ironic smile, which is congenial to me, since I find a lot of things ironic as well. And I guess the final thing to say is New York was not then, because of the huge interest in finance, populated by very interesting heterosexual men. And there are many interesting gay men, but heterosexual men doing business, not so much. Jeffrey was one of the few. New York's the big league. You've got to be good to do it here. I mean, at the level of a Madoff or an Epstein, he actually seemed not just smart, but accomplished. And those are very attractive. And he was unmarried, so he was the ideal extra man. He was invited places, so he made his way rather quickly. It was not just bankers and socialites that Epstein cultivated as contacts, however. Famed defense attorney Alan Dershowitz, who had represented Mike Tyson and O.J. Simpson, also became an acquaintance. My relationship with him was largely academic. We would meet at Harvard for events at his office with other academics. It was all about ideas. I would send him drafts of my book to read. Our relationship was entirely about ideas, academic. He was a guy on the make, so he was seducing them socially. There was nothing about him of the freak and pervert that he would come to be. We're talking about people with a lot of money, billionaires, and people don't do that if a person is up to no good. Epstein's rise through 80s and 90s Manhattan society was explosive, and with success came all the trappings of wealth. A huge French townhouse on the Upper East Side, a waterside mansion in Palm Beach, Florida, a sprawling ranch in New Mexico, a private island in the Caribbean. Epstein soon owned his very own Boeing 727 jet, later nicknamed the Lolita Express. Speaking exclusively to us under condition of anonymity, Epstein's longtime chauffeur reveals what happened behind closed doors, as power-hungry Epstein began to bend the rules. I'm a professional driver. I drove Jeffrey Epstein, his associates, and his girls over 500 times. I am going undercover here because I am afraid for my safety. 
Epstein's apartment was like, it was right on a corner by Central Park. It was massive, you know, big front doors and with J.E. on the door. And like his big thing was his initials were on everything he owned. When we did his luggage, Louis Vuitton with J.E. monogrammed all over everything. He was very, uh, you know, he was a weird type of guy. He was very arrogant, very, you know, like he treated the drivers like peasants. And uh, he wanted, you know, the car to be brand new and he wanted to be treated like a big VIP. He was in his own world, you know, he wanted to be the center of attention, he controlled everything around him. He he called the shots. He would come off the plane casual, sweatsuit, sneakers. But we'd have a car there taking 20 bags to his apartment. He had, you know, like a truckload of luggage. You know, we'd bring that to the, we'd have one car take him or whoever was there. And then the other car would take all the bags because he had so many. But he'd come off pretty casual, you know. He was real, you know, a real hip type of guy, you know what I mean? He was like one of the guys he wanted to be, but he, when he got in the car, he acted like an idiot. It wasn't just Epstein's staff that began to wonder what was behind his facade. People had mixed views of Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein is not as smart as anyone says he is. I did not find him smart, and I know a lot of smart people. Brayer Mines and I say that he had actually really very little ability, that uh, his mind skittered, that uh, when the conversation turned serious, he made an ironic joke and changed it. He changed the conversations. He had the ability to give you three lines about everything. But when you got to the fourth line, he couldn't get there. And then he was like, oh boy, I don't have anything to say now. I never thought he was intelligent, and you kind of knew he was creepy. If it was a dinner, he wouldn't actually show up on time. He would come later. And if it was a party, he was circulating either with the girls or the important people. If he wasn't going to um, screw you or take your money or need you to help him climb the social ladder, he kind of looked through you. Jeffrey Epstein, I think that he enjoyed destroying people. That hidden ruthlessness and cruel streak was revealed to friend and colleague Jesse Kornbluth in one extraordinary incident that effectively ended any friendship between the two men. I was about to be married to an extremely beautiful historian who had just published a book of military history. The night before we were to be married, we had separate phones and he called on hers and said, since you're going to be married tomorrow, this is your last night of freedom where you come over and sleep with me. And at first, she didn't take it seriously. It was just a sort of flip thing that any number of friends would have said. But no, he was actually serious. That was a major tell. And then a few days later, days after our marriage, someone purporting to be me called a number of women, including some of our friends, saying, I'm Jesse Cornwallis. I'd love to go out with you. And they called us to say, somebody, Jesse, is impersonating you. Who would do that? My wife's theory is it had to be Jeffrey. Now, why it made no sense to me, but she explained it to me. It was not because I had this really hot, high-profile career, because I was then making 37000 a year in New York Magazine. It's not because I had this beautiful, hot wife, because she had already rejected him. It was because I went to Harvard, and Harvard was 
greatly meaningful for Jeffrey. If you look at pictures of him in later life, he's wearing a Harvard sweatshirt. He's giving money to Harvard. He opens an office in Harvard Square and is palling out Harvard scientists. Harvard was the kind of validation he sought. And it was a validation which I had already acquired. It's sort of like uh, the talented Mr. Epstein. He wanted to have my persona, my identity. It sounds crazy, but I think it's valid. Across the board, his attitude around women was beginning to attract serious concern, even in the 90s. Jeffrey's nickname among the drivers was, was the pedophile because we used to pick up these young girls. And this was years before he was arrested. I mean, we, it was a joke. We didn't really, you know, we, yeah, we're going to pick up the pedophile because we'd go and we'd pick up these young girls. We, I don't think we really believed that that's what was happening, but it comes to the past that that's the truth. That's what was happening. But we used to call him that. All, it was a big joke in the office all the time. Journalist Laura Goldman came into Epstein's orbit in the 90s through her friend Isabel Maxwell, sister of Ghislaine Maxwell. She remembers feeling uneasy from the start. I met Jeffrey Epstein at the same time I met Ghislaine in the 90s on the party circuit. I spent a lot of time in Palm Beach at that time. I'd been to their house on Brillo Way. It was kind of not my scene, and there were lots of young ladies. Jeffrey Epstein, when he talked to you, he kind of... Um, wasn't really looking at your face, <laughs> let's put it that way. And if you weren't that pretty, he was looking at somebody else's rear end while you were talking. Yeah, you noticed it immediately. If you were going to survive the 90s, the party scene or whatever, you needed to um, know who the good guys were and the bad guys were. And he, it was clear that he was a bad guy right away. I got a sense, you know, now I feel bad because I got a sense something was off. I didn't really pay attention to what was off. Everybody knew that he was looking for young girls, but I didn't realize they were that young. As the 90s became the 2000s, Epstein's taste for partying became more debaucherous. And party central at that time was his Palm Beach mansion on the exclusive El Brio Way. I visited Jeffrey Epstein's house in Palm Beach on Brillo Way in the late 90s with friends of mine for a party. I found it was not as nice as I would expect a house of a billionaire to be, but it was at the end of the block, which probably gave them a lot of privacy. It wasn't the most grandest house on the block, but it was the most private. Remember, it had a pool. The interior was not fancy. Um, it was kind of creepy looking. It was, it was not what you would expect from a Palm Beach mansion. Also in his house in Palm Beach, there were two stairways, and one of them you were not allowed to go up. And I was never in that part of the house. And as his influence grew and his fortune increased, so did the frequency and the wildness of those parties. The reason I went to Jeffrey Epstein's house in the first place was the rumor was that he was throwing wild parties. Nobody knew who he was, really, at that time, because it was before he took Bill Clinton on his plane. And I thought, oh, well, let me check this out. Laura Goldman remembers one party in particular that held disturbing clues as to what was really going on behind Epstein's locked doors and forbidden stairways. I noticed a lot of women, young women, but I did not notice any women that I thought were teenagers. But, you know, in retrospect, there's no way that I would know whose age was what. 
So I noticed at the party that people were wandering off to private rooms and God only knows what they were doing in there, drugs, women, whatever. I noticed some married men from Wall Street, big players, and I noticed they weren't there with their wives. So I said, ah, maybe this isn't the party scene for me. But Epstein's endless party was not a solo adventure. In 1991, he had met British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell. After the heiress moved to America following the mysterious death of her father, disgraced media baron Robert Maxwell. We will be hearing a great deal more about Ghislaine's role in Epstein's deviant activities later in the series. But in the early days, she was known simply as his constant companion. There was kind of an implicit understanding that they did have a romance at one point, and then the romance cooled, and she was going out with other guys. I know she went out with a guy from California, and she went out with some other hedge funder, but she was there. When I went down to Palm Beach on the few occasions I was there, she had a little office there, and she would, when I had to leave, she would arrange for the car to drive me to the airport. She would arrange for my seats on the plane. Mm -hmm. So that's what she would do, but I never saw her do anything unprofessional. I met Jelaine Maxwell at several parties, you know, openings. Basically, if there was an opening, she was there. <laughs> and, you know, she had a great time. I met her at a Clinton Global Initiative event. And she is one of the most intelligent people I met. She's lively, energetic. She cares about the world. I never quite understood what she did for a living or if she did anything for a living. But she was a nice person. Jeffrey Epstein had gone from a Brooklyn gardener's son to Wall Street billionaire and party boy with mansions in Manhattan and Palm Beach. He had his own private jet, presidents, royals, and celebrities on his guest list, a beautiful heiress by his side. To outsiders, it must have seemed like his wildest dreams had come true. But for Epstein, there was still something missing. Jeffrey Epstein did not want to be happy. He had more than any of us could ever want. He was obviously a very unhappy guy that was empty. The guy didn't even graduate college, and he's living like beyond the dreams of a Bond villain, and, and he's not happy. He clearly was never going to be happy. No one was ever going to make him happy. The only thing that made Jeffrey Epstein somewhat happy is to live life on the edge. That was his passion. He loved being a renegade, a rebel, etc. Epstein was searching for happiness in increasingly darker places. And there was one woman who was willing to do whatever it took to help him get there, even if it meant indulging his worst perversions. Laura Goldman says Ghislaine Maxwell seemed to be a willing co-conspirator from the start. She was in love with Jeffrey and wanted to marry him. And while it does not excuse what she's done, we all know that love makes you do crazy things. I believe that Jelaine knowingly recruited young girls. I believe that she knew what Jeffrey Epstein would do to them. I believe that she just, in some crazy part of her mind, did not think it was wrong. And I think she thought keeping Jeffrey happy was her goal. Next time on Epstein, Devil in the Darkness. How did Jeffrey Epstein fund his life of excess and evil? Did his money fund his perversions? Or was the cash somehow a result of his misdeeds? I would say Jeffrey Epstein's money, how much there is, how he got it, is a complete mystery and not just to me. When I met Jeffrey Epstein, of course, he said he was a head fund billionaire, you know. But I had some doubts about that because I, I went to Wharton with some of the leading investors on Wall Street till this day. And none of them were doing business with him. 
sometimes helped dictators hide their money. He sometimes helped Americans recover the money that dictators hid. He was also, he portrayed a lot of stuff that he wasn't. You know, he made everybody believe he was a billionaire, that he, you know, he had unlimited wealth because he owned an island, he owned penthouses, he owned apartments, he owned planes. So he, he was playing this role, almost like Bernie Madoff, you know what I mean? He was playing a role of this big high role and then when they come to find out that he really wasn't worth not even close to what he was claiming. And then that most of his money came from somebody else. It's like the house of cards, everything's falling in on him. I kind of said to myself, these are some of the greatest investors of all time and Jeffrey Epstein doesn't have money with them. So, does he have as much money as he says? Given the way he was living his life and the other powerful men around him, you have to wonder, was it possible Epstein got all this stuff through blackmail? Epstein, Devil in the Darkness is narrated by me, Danielle Robay, executive produced by Dylan Howard and Melissa Cronin, and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavor Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson, Andy Tillett, and Robert Dixter. The series is written by Dominic Utten. Reporting by Aaron Tinney and Doug Montero. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz and Sam Ada. There is so much more to this story, and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Epstein, Devil in the Darkness, wherever you get podcasts.